Welcome back to the Hot Mess to Awesomeness podcast, a show all about inspiring smart, busy women to put their happiness at the top of their to-do list. Join your host and life coach, Dion Thompson, as she chats with amazing women who have figured out how to make their happiness a priority, and more importantly, what it's really like to go from hot mess to awesomeness. And now, on with the show. Welcome everyone to the Hot Mess to Awesomeness podcast. I am your host and life coach, Dion Thompson, and I am very excited to be chatting with Aaron Patterson today. So Aaron and I met as one does in the past two years online at a brilliant, brilliant, it's not even a networking event. It's a social gathering for awesome women that our friend Courtney McLeod hosts called That's What She Said. Courtney's also been a guest on the podcast and she's a pretty phenomenal human and I've just of the assumption that if I meet people at her gatherings, those people are also awesome. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, I was right. And in chatting with Erin, it did not take longer than like a hot minute for me to realize that she's a beautiful story and an amazing human and really a light in the world. And specifically in an area that I think needs more light. So let me quickly introduce you, Erin, to the world. So Erin is a Toronto author and public speaker, and she tested gene positive for Huntington's disease in 2007. Shortly after, she started suffering from depression, then received more crushing news. She was infertile. Despite those diagnoses, she was determined to have a family and a life and and to live a joyful life. She's on a mission to positively impact other people's lives by writing and speaking about genetic disease, depression, and infertility. She shows it is possible to live a meaningful life, even when faced with unexpected obstacles. She's the author of All Good Things, a memoir about genetic testing, infertility, and one woman's relentless search for happiness. Erin is also the founder of Lemonade Press, a local publisher focused on empowering patient communities by helping people write and share their own journeys in specialized medical anthologies. Gotta tell you that that is already in my mind. I have a science health background and I feel like when I stepped into the world of narrative story and that kind of connection and power that comes from listening to humans share their experience, it really opens up a whole new way of seeing medical concerns or issues or situations. So Aaron, thank you. Thank you. For joining me and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> I, so we had the pleasure, I'm going to say the pleasure, I can't speak for you, but I'm going to say I had the <laughs> pleasure of sharing a stage with you at one of the, that's what she said gatherings. And I did get a chance to hear a little bit more about your story. And so the topic of our night was choice. And we each shared a story in relation to that. And I was captivated, moved, laughed. I cried. The I it, within ten minutes, you had me going everywhere, and I'm I'm just feeling again so grateful to have you here to share a little bit more about you know that the name of the podcast is Hot Mess to Awesomeness, and of course now as an author, you were sharing your story in awesome, awesome ways. But maybe you can give us a little insight as to. What transpired for you in those early years, I don't say days, but years 
and, and kind of what brought you to this place of, of really that intense vulnerability of writing everything down in a book? Well, my journey really started when I was a kid, but I didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, I was under 10 years old. My grandmother was very mean and my parents fought about her a lot. And I didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew what was wrong with her at the time. But I had this hatred for my grandmother because I just heard my parents fighting about her all the time. And when I was a kid, my parents sent me off to spend the summer with my aunt Nan at the cottage so that I could have a break and just feel better about myself. And I ended up spending summer after summer there. So that's just sort of my history with my grandmother and how I felt for her. So then fast forward to when I was 31 years old and my husband and I decided that we were going to finally start our family. We had felt settled down in our careers. I owned my own flower shop and it was just hitting its first peak of success. And he was well-established within the construction industry. And we had just bought our first condo. And so we just really felt settled and ready to have a family. And we were 31, so it shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody, right? <laughs> but unfortunately, one morning over brunch, we decided to share the exciting news with my parents. Hey, guess what, mom and dad, we're, we're going to have a family. You're going to be grandparents next year. Because why would we think there would be any trouble on the horizon, right? So that was when my parents revealed the long-held family secret that maybe my grandmother might have died from a genetic disease. We didn't know what it was, but there were suspicions that it was a neurological disorder, maybe Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or Huntington's disease was thrown in there. So that sent me on a quest to find out my family background because if it was a genetic disease, then of course my children would be at risk for having it. So I actually um, decided to go through the genetic testing process and found out within a short eight months that I was gene positive for Huntington's disease. So my husband and I had to decide what we wanted to do about having children. And we made the decision at the time to try and conceive naturally anyways, because we felt that my life as a person with HD had value and so would the life of our child if they happened to inherit the disease from us. But unfortunately, after a year of trying, we still weren't pregnant. And I just kind of assumed it was all the stress I had been undergoing through genetic testing. I didn't really think that there could be anything seriously wrong. Mm -hmm. But we ended up seeking out the advice of a fertility doctor. And we ended up going through fertility treatments. And again, we started off doing things that were as minimally invasive as possible at first. But eventually, after a year and a half of trying, nothing had worked. So we ended up deciding to do in vitro fertilization, which is also known as IVF. And there was an experimental new procedure that was very new at the time um, called PGD, which is genetic testing on your embryos. So we actually did our IVFs with PGD because I felt if we were going to the extent of doing an IVF and we are already interfering with mother nature that far, I felt I couldn't look my kid in the eye and say, I didn't want to spend the extra money to do the PGD. So that's why we decided on the PGD and, and the thought of um, guaranteeing that my child wouldn't have Huntington's disease was very appealing after all of uh, the depression and trauma that I went through after my genetic diagnosis. But unfortunately, we went through IVF with PGD two times and nothing worked. 
So we decided to give up on our own fertility because I knew I couldn't step foot in another fertility clinic ever again. I'd been going for a total of two and a half years. And for anybody who's gone through fertility treatments, you know, it's like a part-time job. You're there at six or seven in the morning. And sometimes you're there for two to three hours going through testing before you start your work for the day. So it's very emotionally and physically intense. And to do that for two and a half years was exhausting, completely exhausting. So we decided that we would try adoption to create our family. And I really didn't think that adoption would work because nothing else had. So why would adoption work? And most people think that adopting is easy, but it's not. It's an intense process on its own, which involves taking parenting classes and going through a home study, which is about 10 hours of interviews with a social worker and having your fingerprints done and having to submit medicals and having to submit your finances. So the whole time, we also didn't know if my gene status for Huntington's disease would affect our ability to, to adopt as well. But we decided to give it our all and try adopting. And fortunately, we were chosen to be the parents of a newborn baby girl that had been born the day before. <laughs> and go. So, yeah. So literally, we had no notice before we became parents. And all in all, it took us five and a half years to create our family. And through that entire time, I was suffering through anxiety and depression on big time levels. I really found it hard to get out of bed in the morning. I would treat myself to five or six coffees a day because just going for a walk to get my coffee was the only thing that could get me through the next 10 minutes. I would walk down the street with big sunglasses on and just tears pouring down my eyes and thinking to myself, why can't anybody tell how miserable I am? How come all these people are just walking past me and nobody could see this dark cloud that is hanging over my head? That's what I felt when I was out in public. And I was terrified of people knowing about my genetic status for Huntington's disease because I felt that it made me defective and I felt mm. like there was something wrong with me. And I thought that if I told anybody that they would think I was defective too and that mm. they wouldn't want to be my friend or right. they wouldn't would want to be in some kind of relationship with me. Right. And I, you know, earlier you had mentioned that experience with, with your grandmother and that understanding that she, there, there was anxiety and stress and anger and frustration that loomed around her. Mm -hmm. And I would envision that that would layer into, you know, as a, that's an impressed moment in your life. Like you're 10, like that, that when that stuff goes in, it, it goes in and, yeah. and then it's going to pop out in all kinds of places. And so I can appreciate that layered into that would be that fear of, well, the people who find out about this, they're going to get angry at, like, there's going to be the, all this right. emotion that comes back at you because all of a sudden you are a, you know, a quote unquote, like there's something wrong with you and you're a bad person. And, you know, Oh, well, and my only experience with Huntington's disease was my grandmother, who I thought was a mean old lady. <laughs> and then I thought, well, that's what I'm going to turn into. I'm going to turn right. into a mean old lady that everybody hates. Right. So that was a part of the reason I wanted to keep it a secret as well. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I, I'm just, my brain is going a mile a minute and I, your story is, it's, 
there's so many layers to it. And I know it didn't, I mean, we, we've been talking for all of five minutes and you've just mm-hmm. layered in so many elements, but there's, uh, it, we're talking about years of you moving through these experiences. And so I'm curious, you know, when you're in the, the, I don't say the thick of depression and please excuse that particular terminology, but when you are truly in it and you feel like you are under inside that cloud, you know, I appreciate that just the, I'm just going to go for this walk, which happened to be six, five, six times a day, but I'm just going to do this. But aside of those moments when you're like, oh, okay, I'm doing, I'm going, I'm being, I'm doing, what is it that you gravitated towards to keep yourself moving, to keep yourself like stepping into the next thing and the next thing? Well, I made a decision very early on in my diagnosis, probably in the first couple of months after getting my diagnosis. I had read a book by Michael J. Fox in my early 20s, and I remember picking it up and reading the book, and he talks about how getting Parkinson's disease to him was a gift. And I thought at the time, I have no idea, like, how how is that possible? How could it possibly be a gift? I don't get it. And I said to myself at that time in my early 20s, if I ever get a life-altering disease, I want to be like Michael J. Fox and see this as a gift. So somewhere along the line, after I was diagnosed, I remembered reading that book and I remembered the attitude with which he faced life. And I said to myself, I want to be like Michael J. Fox. I don't want this to ruin my life. I'm going to find happiness again. So those are the mantras that I told myself every single day over and over and over again. I'm going to be happy again. I'm going to find happiness. Mm -hmm. So I actively worked towards finding happiness. I had no idea if it was even possible because I was so depressed. I had no idea how it would be ever possible to be accepting of my diagnosis. Like, when you're diagnosed as gene positive for Huntington's disease, that means I don't have the disease yet. I have the gene, which means I'm going to get the disease. I just don't know when I'm going to get it. So how could I live my life knowing that this horrible thing is going to happen to me? And how can I be ever be okay with that? It just didn't make any sense to me. But I did little things each day to move me towards happiness. Sometimes I would buy a brightly colored mug. I'd had this big bright yellow coffee cup. And I would just drink my tea and coffee out of it because looking at the bright yellow color was something that added a little tiny bit of joy to my day. Mm -hmm. Other times it was treating myself to coffee. I was a runner, so I became really addicted to running. (laughs) I really (laughs) loved running to begin with. And I was running three or four days a week anyway. But after my diagnosis, I was running five, six, seven times a week, just because running was the only thing that could release the rage that I felt within me and the anger. Mm -hmm. And even after I went for a run, I would still be so pent up. And reading was a huge, big thing for me. Mm -hmm. I would read other people's stories. I, I read a lot of memoirs and I found that I always learned something from those people's memoirs, even if it was just one thing in the book that I read and thought, oh my gosh, I feel that way too. That was enough to help me get me to get me through the day for sure. Mm. Um, reading was a huge, big thing. Yeah. And I think it's probably no surprise then that you are offering that gift now out to others in the world of that opportunity to be reminded that they too are not alone by you mm-hmm. sharing your story. So thank you again for that. Uh, uh, 
that's one of the main reasons that I wrote my book because mm -hmm. after I was diagnosed, I lived in secrecy and fear for so long. I was afraid of people finding out my secret. Like I mentioned before, I did have a couple of close confidants, like some of my running friends and my husband. And eventually I told my family that I'd gone through genetic testing. So they knew. So I did have some people to lean on, but even, even them, I was afraid to speak to, you know, mm -hmm. um, when I would learn something new about Huntington's disease, I wouldn't want to tell my husband because I was afraid once he found out that thing, that would be right. the thing that he would leave me for. Right. But he has never shown any sign of ever leaving me or given me any reason to doubt him. It was just all within me. So eventually I decided that I was sick of living with the secret because I felt like I wasn't really living life. I felt like I was living a half of a life because I couldn't mm. fully be myself and couldn't fully talk about what was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. So I made the decision to stop living in secrecy and to start sharing my story. And it was too scary to do it face-to-face -face with people. So <laughs> I was like, I'm going to write a book about all of this stuff. And right. also the experience I went through felt like such a big life-altering experience that I felt like it needed a book to capture it all. Mm -hmm. Like just writing a blog or something wasn't enough right for the for the impact that that it had on my life so i spent four and a half years writing my book and i had a writing coach at the time who was privy to some of my deepest darkest secrets that nobody else had ever even heard about and she just encouraged me along yes this is good you should write this all the time yes keep writing keep writing for <laughs> for years she was <laughs> encouraging me along on that and I just did that because I had experienced the power of reading other people's stories. And I knew that if I shared my story, it could help somebody else as well. Absolutely. And I mean, even in the, in the vaguest sense. So I've, I've always been absolutely captivated by the power of storytelling and sharing of stories because although your experience is unbelievably unique and could not be recreated by any other human on the planet, in simply being present to it, it allows listeners like myself who have no concept of what it means to be you, but it gives me more insight on in what it means to be me. And it gives me the opportunity to shift perspective or to step out of, you know, sort of see the forest for the trees at this point, but to, to be able to step out of it and go, wow, I have felt those feelings and I have felt that lost and I have felt that far gone and I have felt that alone. And to know that there are ways, there are strategies and there are people who can and do and will and that I can see you and that I can talk to you and that you know, you're a real live ass person and, and, and not just some sort of bit of randomness out there. It really, it changes people. And I, I love that you had taken what specifically not, not just worked for you, but guided you through those times. And now your legacy is, is woven into that as well. So you become this, this beautiful light in this grand narrative that we're all living. And it's absolutely phenomenal. Well, and it, the way you just put it like that, I mean, how amazing would that be if I was that light for other people? That sounds I'm gonna, beautiful. Okay. I'm just going to go with, honey, you are, 
And, <laughs> and so, you know, you can start thinking that maybe it will, cause it is, I already, I already know this. And <laughs> I I'm, I'm curious because you had said in those early days, of course, you'd been hiding from like your, your family, like people who were close to you and, and then used this beautiful way to communicate your absolute truth to the world. What happened after that? Cause the book is out there. People are reading it. So what happened to those relationships? I mean, obviously there was fear that was preventing you from communicating and what, well, and a lot it? of time when I did communicate with people, it wasn't really something they wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talked to my family, a lot of the time I would get brushed off and people would just try to placate me and say, Oh, don't worry about that. It's not going to happen for 10 years or 15 years. And, you know, they just didn't want to speak about it. So then I eventually gave up trying and that was very painful for me. And that's also a part of why I started writing too. Cause I'm like, screw that. I'm going to, I'm going to write it anyways. I'm going to start talking about all of these things that are emotional and to me that my family doesn't want to talk about. And Mm -hmm. I was terrified of what might happen, but I didn't, they didn't just read my book for the first time. I slowly started writing blogs and Mm. putting things out there a little bit at a time and just sort of gauging everybody's reactions. If they had had negative reactions, that wouldn't have made me stop though. It might've been hard for me to continue, but I just felt so passionate about what I wanted to do and the fact that it could help other people that uh, Mm. if my mom hated it, I wouldn't have said, no, I'm not going to do it anymore. So by the time my book came out, they had had a little bit of exposure (laughs) to what I was writing about. So the book just came out three months ago Mm -hmm. and uh, the experience of releasing the book into the world was something happened that I wasn't expecting. It was very emotional. And even though the feedback that I was getting was all positive, which is great, (laughs) it was completely exhausting Mm -hmm. to have spent four and a half years working on this project and to finally have it out in the world and to have all this positive feedback was very, a very vulnerable experience for sure. Because again, people, I I didn't hold anything back in the book. Mm -hmm. Everybody's reading my deepest, darkest secrets in the book for sure. But I also felt this release at the same time that I could let go of those stories now because I was holding on to them so tightly because they felt so important that I didn't want to forget them. But then once I published them in the book, I'm like, okay, the book holds those now. I don't have to hold on to them in me anymore. And it just feels so weird for me to say that out loud. Uh, <laughs> but but that is how it feels. It just feels like this weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And mm-hmm. even though I'm speaking to people about the book a lot more, and talking about the topics in the book. And that's still a very emotional process for me. It just feels like I don't have to hold on to it as tightly anymore. Yeah. So I just, what's really kind of, I'll say bubbling up from an, an intuitive way, but when any human lives so concretely inside what they believe to be true and who they believe they are, right? we can get so like we grip it so tightly and often 
for many of us, and I, you know, I'm speaking to all the women here who are felt very should on and very, you know, going about their lives, pleasing other people and doing all of those things because they're supposed to and trying to get things done and so on and so forth. But we can start to believe that we're the person that does those things. So in the same line, you were the person who those like those stories defined you and therefore they they're part of that narrative that then must be protected because that's who you are. You are the person who holds these stories. And then you became the person who is writing about these stories. And then came that moment when those stories no longer defined you because they actually live outside of you. And you went from being the person who writes the stories to the person who released the stories. And mm -hmm. I, I can envision how freeing and exhausting that would be simultaneously <laughs> because yeah. we get so caught up in being who we are that becomes very habitual, right? It's just a pattern. We just go about our day. We, I do this because I'm this person. I do this because I'm this person. And I say no to this and I say yes to this. And I, you know, this is how I spend my time. And then when we shift out of who we believe we are or who we understand ourselves to be, now we have to pay attention. Like, oh, what do I do now? What, what do I do now as a published author? And okay, so I'm going to get me on some podcasts and that's great. And I'm all super <laughs> excited about that. But, you know, you're putting yourselves in a whole new place. Excuse me. You're putting yourself in brand new places that you've mm -hmm. never been before. And yeah. consciously you got to be on paying attention all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's exhausting. And so for, exhausting. so for those of us who maybe that we're not stepping into the, I've published a book world, but we are stepping into new job, new way of being, I'm holding boundaries for the first time. Like you're, you're stepping into a space where you, you're now, I'm the one who does this. And all of a sudden you got to be paying attention like 90% more than you ever were. You're going to get tired. So <laughs> how are you managing that? How are you, cause it's great. Like this is, these are great things that are happening. It's not like you're being overwhelmed by a whole bunch of shit storms, mm -hmm. great things. So how are you managing staying true to you while you're stepping into this new errand? I recently heard a term that somebody used called a vulnerability hangover. And that just really clicked for me because yes. I couldn't understand why I was so exhausted when all of these good things were happening. And when I tape a podcast, I'm exhausted afterwards and I mm -hmm. usually have a nap. <laughs> and then good. when I finally heard that term vulnerability hangover, I was like, oh, that's what's happening to me. Mm -hmm. So it's been very helpful just to have that term and just realize that that's what's happening so that I can do things after I'm putting myself out there that help me relax and just sort of help me come back down. So I've recently started meditating again or doing things like going for a walk at the, we have a local park where there's a little forest there that I like to walk through and just doing things to take my mind off of that, that part of me and just really doing things to live in the moment. I was doing a whole bunch of sports until this latest lockdown, <laughs> but I was really enjoying going rock climbing with my daughter and playing volleyball because I find that when I'm doing sports, I'm really living in the moment and not thinking about anything else. So those are all things that are very helpful for sure. But it's really been a learning process mm -hmm. because I wasn't expecting to feel so emotional over my book being released that's it, it. I so appreciate that the, what you 
are gravitating to isn't to, to try to do more or to figure out what it means to be, but you, you mentioned a number of grounding practices. And I think it's absolutely pivotal that in order to truly manage any change, and so these are big changes that are happening here, all great things, still big mm-hmm. changes. The one thing that we are always in control of is the foundation in which we are built upon. And so walking, meditating, activities, music, sports, family, all those pieces that were, and being in that space, being like here in this moment, I'm in my body here in this chair doing this thing. It can be unbelievably settling in when the world around you is going like all over the place, right? Oh, I'm going here. I'm doing this. What I have to learn this. Oh, I'm going to go. That's exciting. I get to go do this. Right. So thank you for sharing that. I, I just, I can't, I want to stress that in every podcast, in every blog and everything I do that when we take even just five minutes to just be like, okay, like I'm here, we regain full control of our lives. We don't control what other people do. We don't control what's going to happen in the media. We don't control any of those things, but we become, we regain control of, of ourselves. And I think that as you, you know, there's a million more uncertain things ahead of you. I'm sure many of them are going to be fantastic. And so you developing these practices, I think is such a, a beautiful um, model for anybody who is challenged by uncertainty and like, I'm just, so thank you. I I mean, I feel like I'm like saying this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for doing the thing. Thank you for being here. Oh, anyway. Yeah. And and I'm just very new to meditation. I only started meditating this year Mm -hmm. and I started meditating with the first round of online learning because I was stuck at home all day with my daughter and all these kids voices in the background. And I just, am a person who really enjoys my solitude. So then I started snapping at her all the time. And I thought, this isn't the parent I want to be. So what can I do to get myself under control? So that's why I started meditating in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I found that even though my meditation practices is only 10 minutes a day, Hmm. I, I couldn't believe after I was doing it for the first week and I started to feel better. I'm like, this doesn't even make any sense to me. It's only 10 minutes. How could 10 minutes actually make a difference? But right. it really does. It really yeah. does for sure. I, I have found, I mean, depending on the time and the day, but sometimes like three deep breaths can, that's a game changer. Just mm-hmm. taking that moment. And I was speaking to someone the other day, she is in the healthcare industry and very, very tapped to say the least. So if you know anything about what's going on in our province right now in relation to um, nurses, then you know that they're very stressed. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I I can't fucking meditate. Like, are you kidding? Like, I can't stop my brain. And I start talking to her about active meditation. So when you are doing all the things that you're doing, because you can't necessarily stop everything around you, but you are always in control of what's happening in your head. Nobody's in there, Mm -hmm. but you. And so, although there may be thoughts that are racing, they're still you're still in charge of them and you can still pause them. You can still breathe into them. Even if you're folding laundry, doing dishes, driving people places or doing whatever. So I appreciate that. You know, I love it. It's only 10 minutes. It's only four minutes. It's only, it, it doesn't matter how much time it is. It's the, the act itself of putting you first and putting you mm-hmm. in the moment. That's so powerful. Mm-hmm. So powerful. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, So 
your, we, not that we skimmed by your daughter, but we kind of did a little bit and she's not, she's so much more than that, but tell me a little bit about you. So you're writing this book and you have this beautiful child and, and after five and a half years of many times, not thinking that that was a possibility, what is sort of your vision for her and the next generation? Like, what is it that you just, you're sharing these stories and you're sharing this powerful narrative? What is sort of your hope and dream for her and, and, and the up and coming generations of individuals? Cause genetic testing is not going anywhere. And I'm sure it's just going to get deeper and deeper and more evolved. I am very open with my daughter about my story and she knows that I'm going to get Huntington's disease. That is something more recent that came up that we talked about, but I've never hidden my story from her because I'm on this great book publishing journey and I want to be able to talk about it because it's exciting for me. Right. And she actually designed the cover of my book, which Mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened if I wasn't speaking about how exciting it was. Right. Yep. So I don't really have any hopes and dreams for her or the generation coming up. Like I kind of just want her to figure out her own path in life and what she wants to do. But I feel that it's really important to model a positive attitude and compassion. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of conversations about those sorts of things, especially when we're dealing with her grandpa who has Huntington's disease. Um, we don't criticize him for the things that he can't do. And and so sometimes when you're speaking with him, it's harder for him to answer a question because the thoughts don't come as quickly. So it's teaching my daughter that she has to pause and wait and give him a chance to answer the question on his own. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for a nine-year-old to do, especially Mm -hmm. my nine-year-old because she loves talking, (laughs) right? So for her to learn that lesson, I think is really important because I grew up thinking everybody was just like me and normal and happy and doing all these things. And I, like, I didn't face any adversity until I was in my thirties and looking back on it, I was so naive. Right. So I just want her to be aware that everybody is going through something and Mm -hmm. everybody has a different perspective and a different way of seeing life Mm -hmm. and being different isn't wrong and that we just have to appreciate our differences and learn from each other. I think those are the things that I'm really trying to teach her. Beautiful. And what's coming up for me is when you had referred back to Michael J. Fox's book and what you had hoped for when you get Huntington's or now being gene positive, that you will look at it as a gift. And here you are offering this gift to your daughter and to the ripple effect she's going to have (laughs) on the world of being able to to see the light in all people, to take that pause and to, mm-hmm. to be fully present and, and embracing of people's differences. And so what a gift. Thank you. Beautiful. Oh, I'm all teary all of a sudden. Erin, <laughs> thank you. I am so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for this conversation. And, and I, I'm going to say, I speak for the listeners to say, that you are a brilliant light in the world and doing beautiful things. And I'm looking forward to getting my copy of your book. And thank you. is there, is there anything? Oh, and yeah, there will be a link for everybody to get a copy of the book, just so you know. So if you're interested in connecting with Aaron, please do so. 
and and let's continue having these conversations around what it sort of these dark spaces and and shining light there mm-hmm. but is there I say this to everybody, but is there anything else or anything you would like to pull from our conversation that you really would like to uh, leave with our listeners today? I think that no matter what you're going through or no matter what you're feeling, that your feelings aren't wrong Mm. and they're totally valid. And just because you don't know anybody who feels the same way or understands you doesn't mean that they're not out there. And I think that's something really important in this day and age of you know, science is advancing and, you know, I can go through genetic testing to find out if I'm going to get this disease, but there's nothing I could do about it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a hard place to live. And for people who are considering genetic testing, I think it's just really important for them to slow down and really think about what it, what impact it could potentially have on their life before rushing into a decision like that. Mm -hmm. And I really feel for the people who have a genetic disease and they're trying to make the decision to have children because it feels like such a huge responsibility. And I was terrified of making the wrong decision, but I've since learned that there is no right or wrong decision. You can only make the decision that is right for you and your unique set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I might decide that I don't want to pass on the gene and I might do IVF with genetic testing, but somebody in my own family might decide to have children naturally. And you could think that could cause a lot of conflict in a family, but each person's situation is entirely unique. And the decision that you make that's right for you is the perfect decision. There's no right or wrong choice. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Erin, for being with me today and for sharing your story. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you to all the listeners who are tuning in. I look forward to having you connect with us again next week. (laughs) I edit this part. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. Join Dion again next week to learn more about what you can do to go from hot mess to awesomeness.